Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Bastard Robert Hormatz joins us now, as I said, the vice chair of Kissinger Associates. Great to see you. Great to have you with us. Great to be with you. Uh, as always. Let's start with the import of this trip. The the first trip a sitting president takes is always a a big deal. There's a sense that he is uh, fleeing or escaping some of the drama in Washington on this one uh, as well. Does that make this trip uh, easier in a way? He can sort of wholly focus on on what he's doing overseas, or or uh, is the drama in Washington going to really distract from him? Uh, do you think while he's gone? I think it's the latter. I think there's going to be continued drama in Washington, and not only that, the drama in Washington makes a lot of the foreign leaders with whom he'll be meeting a little bit more concerned about his focus and about his staying power and about whether he's going to be able to take the kind of leadership role in the Western world and in the global economy and the global security order that they would like to see. A president distracted at home traditionally is able to spend less time, less energy, and give less attention to global leadership. How ambitious is this itinerary? I've seen a lot of people say this is a nine-day trip, five stops, two big summits. That's a lot. It's enormously ambitious, and he's going to be doing a lot of things. I've gone on these long trips, and at the end of nine days, A, you're tired, and B, your mind is sort of focused on so many things, it's hard to digest anything new. But I think he has some very good advisors in the National Security Council, although the State Department, which normally plays a major role in planning these trips, really, except that the top, doesn't have very much leadership at this point. So it makes it difficult. These are very intricately planned and run trips, and without full State Department uh, participation, it makes it a little more difficult. But the, the key point for him, I think, is to understand he's going out among very different cultures, Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. in particular, the Arab world. He has very little experience there. Yet it's critical that he demonstrate American uh, support for cooperation with these Gulf countries, particularly Saudi, but the other countries as well, and to figure out the, the right line and the right strategy If he wants to take a leadership role, he has to have a clear strategy. He just can't chat with them. He has to have a strategy. They have to believe that it's helpful, and they have to believe that he's going to stick to it. That's very important. What's the bubble like? As you said, you've been on these trips before. This is a president who avowedly likes to watch cable news, likes to be engaged with the the zeitgeist, what's going on, what people are saying about him. When you're moving from city to city, from place to place, and you're in this uh, security bubble, how difficult is it to keep apprised of what's happening, uh, not only in the country around you, but uh, in your home country, many thousands of miles away? Actually, that part's fairly easy. With modern communications, presidents get briefed very, very frequently while they're sitting in their compartments on Air Force One on what the press is saying about what they have said or done 
in the previous country they visited and what's going on in the country that they're about to visit. So they'll, he'll be in close contact with what's going on. That's the problem with the distraction, though, because he's going to be trying to follow all these various convoluted events going on yeah. here while he's on this trip and not being able to focus as much time on the trip as he should be. Robert Hormat's with us with Kissinger Associates. Good morning, everyone. We've got a generous half hour with Ambassador uh, Hormats. We'll talk about NATO here in our next section because David Gurr is too busy this morning <laughs> to spend time with me. Uh, he'll spend it with the uh, important leader, the, the, the Secretary, Secretary General. General. Is that the exactly. right title? Yes. The Secretary General of NATO um, as well. I would suggest, Ambassador Hormats, that the dearth of talent within the Trump administration really comes home to play on these trips. Give us a vignette. You're on Air Force One. You, you figured out the food's lousy, the coffee's subpar, you know, the usual thing. The, the, the glamour's gone. You're the team, except he doesn't have the team previous administrations have had. How lonely is it without the correct staffing of state and defense? Well, it makes it a lot more difficult, as you've correctly pointed out. Uh, the State Department has people on the ground in all these countries. You need to rely on them. You need to have ambassadors there. They have very few ambassadors out there. They have very few uh, people at senior level in the State Department. So it makes it much more difficult right. to plan the trips, and it makes it much more difficult but, to get the kind of information and judgments that you need from around and, the world to implement what you want to do. And the, the other problem is that they really don't have a highly developed strategy development system in place yet. McMaster is a very good guy, and, he's, and, and Tillerson's a very good guy, and there are many others, Mattis as well. But you need to have a national security okay. council product process that organizes a but strategy in another I want to I want to suggest and I don't of course would never uh, put words in your mouth sir that Hormat's got off the airplane exhausted in some South American country w at one point didn't know where he was didn't know what the city was and didn't know who he was meeting and there was some 33 year old cherub there that saved your butt is that person there to save the president of the United States tail on an eight day trip well, I always tried to anticipate where I was going and what I was doing. <laughs> Did you ever wake up and not always a good idea. Moments, <laughs> But what, the, what these people on the ground can do yeah. is bring you up to date with events yeah. in real time. What's going on today? What happened last night? Give you a very, very current picture of what's right. happening. So while you may have your strategy and you may know what country you're in, you may know who you're going to see, there's no substitute for having very immediate on-the-ground input into your thinking and into what you say and what's going on in the country. Right. You have to have a real-time understanding of that. And the State Department people on the ground do. And yeah. I still think you'll be able to but get that because there are good people on the ground. David Guerrero, did you see how the ambassador <laughs> sidestepped my question of did he ever wake up somewhere and yes, not know he where did. he was? He, he, he was elegant on that. How do you approach uh, summits like these? You have a president here who, in the last week or so, he said uh, you know, he, he, he wasn't sure of how he was briefed on some intelligence matters. A lot of briefing goes into this. Yeah. Uh, you stick to script at these summits. How difficult is that for somebody who's new to the job uh, well, to figure out to and learn, to do? He has to learn to stick to scripts. He has to learn to read his, his, his intelligence. He has to learn to read his briefing papers in advance and absorb them. And you just can't go into these summits and read your documents. Well, some people do. But people want to know you have command of the issues, not just that you're reading something that someone's put in front of you, but you have a command of the issues. You understand the problems they're facing. 
you have a strategy for working with them on those problems, and that you really believe in these global institutions. You believe in a global economic order, traditionally led by the United States and other Western countries, that you believe in a strong alliance and that you're going to do things at home and internationally to implement those. They're going to be testing not just what he says, but what he really thinks. Is he going to change his mind? Is he going to work with them? Is he going to listen to them? And if he wants a strong America, he's got to have a strong alliance. America's strong in part because it's strong in itself, and it's part, and in part for the last 70 years because it had strong and reliable allies. He's got to demonstrate that he wants to maintain those allies. He wants to maintain mm-hmm. the global economic order because it's been very good for the United States, despite the anti-globalization people. Global uh, trade and finance have been very good for the United States and for our alliance well, system. David Gura and Tom Keene in New York. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio with Ambassador Robert Hormats, the vice chair of Kissinger uh, Associates. We'll get to NATO in just a sec. I'll take advantage of you being here to prep a little bit for my interview coming up at, eight, at 8.30. But let me ask you first about... Uh, The Belt and Road Forum we saw in Beijing uh, last week, a big event for the Chinese president and his vision for what China is going to do, the role it's going to play uh, globally. Uh, It was at the Daitai State Guest House. We saw President Vladimir Putin playing the piano there before meeting with the Chinese president. What was your takeaway from it? What's China trying to to do here? What's your perspective on China's ambitions, its global ambitions vis-a-vis this program? Well, in in terms of scope and in terms of the breadth of the initiative and the depth of the initiative, this is equivalent to the Marshall Plan uh, 70 years earlier. And it's in part about strengthening Chinese ties in the region, uh, in Southeast Asia and Central Asia and elsewhere. But it has a broader objective as well, and that is to strengthen Chinese ties and Chinese connectivity with Europe. It sees Europe as a big market. It sees Europe as a source of new technology. And if you look at the old Silk Road, it was really between Europe Mm. and China. It went through Central Asia, went through other parts of the world, but that was it. And I think China's goal, China's scope, China's ambitions are to strengthen ties with Europe. And this infrastructure build-out is one way of doing it. Also, of course, it strengthens their role in Asia. And since the United States has dropped out of the TPP, China will be influencing the development of rules in the region with its own trade agreement, the RCEP. And therefore, that will not be helpful to American companies. It's not anti-American, but it certainly is going to instill rules in the region that are somewhat different and less conducive to American interests than the TPP would have been. So this NATO summit is coming up uh, on the 25th next week, and uh, we have heard mixed messages from this administration about NATO. The president spoke at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy this week. He said, quote, I will strengthen old friendships and seek new partners, but partners who also help us, not partners who take and take and take. He has been almost singly focused on funding for defense when it comes to NATO allies. How is that rhetoric going to play out when all of these leaders gather in Brussels next week? Other administrations have been encouraging the Europeans to devote 2% of their GDP to defense. And I think that is a reasonable thing to do. On the other hand, I think he underestimates dramatically the role that many NATO countries are already playing in support of American interests. After 9-11, NATO invoked Article 5. They all joined the United States and said, if, if there's an attack on the United States, it means, in effect, there's an attack on us. And we're going to work with you 
in Afghanistan and elsewhere. So NATO troops, NATO country troops, have been very actively involved in various parts of the world fighting alongside of American troops. He needs to understand that. He also needs to understand that if he wants to have a, a, a strong role in reducing the incursions of Putin, not just into Iran and into, Europe, into uh, Eastern Europe, um, particularly the Ukraine, but also the risks that could occur in the Baltics. So he's got to work with NATO, strengthen NATO, strengthen cooperation in, in right. NATO. And, and Putin's goal is to divide countries in Europe, support right-wing populist parties, divide them internally, divide Europe in terms of the EU, mm. and divide Europe from the United States. And he has to demonstrate that he understands no. Putin's objectives and he wants to strengthen cooperation Right. With Europe, strengthen European countries and strengthen the EU. Right. That's in America's interests. He's Rob, got to get that. Robert Hormetz, thank you so much. We're out of time. Next time you're on for four hours. John Tucker, make a note. <laughs> Do the full Next show. time Bob yeah. Hormetz is on for four hours. <laughs> Let's just make him, uh, you know, the uh, the host of the uh -oh. show. Uh -oh. Yeah, uh -oh. we can do that. Yeah, thank you. So he's going to replace anybody. Alongside her. You know, they say that the... Administration's an HR disaster, but then that explains Bloomberg surveillance. <laughs> yes. Keep it up, John Tucker. Ambassador Hormitz, thank you so thank much. Thank you for having me. Uh, just in, in particularly the, after this. Terrific show. Enjoyed it. Thank, thank you. Very you. Much. This, this historic week and onward is. It, it's really, David, this interview you're doing today, it could, could it be better time? No. Very grateful for it. Between the domestic the week and the foreign week to come. David Gurr with the Secretary General of NATO. Look for that. In the next hour, this is Bloomberg. This is a real treat. <laughs> Luigi Zingales with us. We spoke to Professor Zingales at Booth School um, earlier about American investment. I think, David, in honor of your NATO discussion, we should go to Italy. Yeah, and that Mr. Trump traverses Italy. Yeah, he'll be trip. there for this uh, for this G7 summit. We saw the uh, Prime Minister of Italy meeting with uh, the Russian President earlier uh, this week. Give us some context here: the role that Italy is playing on the European stage and the world stage right now. Unfortunately, it plays the role of the troublemaker. Uh -huh. Just that uh, Europe uh, is doing. Uh, well, these days, uh, there is a recovery. The recovery is getting stronger. Um, in France, uh, Macron won the presidential election. Everything seems to go in the right way, except Italy. Um, Italy is still uh, doing poorly economically, uh, has a very large debt that um, is kept at bay by quantitative easing. But uh, if this were to finish, then will create problems, and is politically unstable. Is due for an election by February, and at the moment, the the leading party in the polls is um, kind of a, a, a populist party um, run by Beppe Grillo. So, um, and we don't know his ability to form a government to govern the country. Uh, if you think that uh, uh, Donald Trump is inexperienced, wait for Beppe Grillo. <laughs> How much connective tissue is there, as you see it, between uh, the politics in all of these these countries? So we saw a populism perhaps held back in, in France. You could say that. I'll, I'll put those words in your mouth. But is there something that is there a line that runs between the UK and France and Italy when it comes to um, the, the particular brand of, of politics? 
I think there are certainly some elements in common, even if the situation, of course, are, are, are different. I think that uh, the overwhelming fact is that uh, the growth that has benefited uh, uh, some, especially in the U.S. and in the U.K., has not been broadly shared. And in Italy, this growth has not even existed. So this, the situation is even worse. And, uh, and I think that when you combine uh, a dismal economic performance with a generalized perception of corruption, mm -hmm. uh, I think that uh, you have all the elements for a, some populist reaction. I think that uh, my surprise has been how sort of tame this has been so far, not uh, how strong it's been. And yes, has has been sort of... a kept back in France, but we have to say almost by, by luck, because if 3% had switched in the first round, we would have had a, a Le Pen Mélenchon yeah. second round that was pretty scary. Is, is the growth distribution in Europe like in the United States? Is, is, the, inequality, is the inequality or the advantage of growth going to too few? I think it's less pronounced in the States, but also the growth has been lower. So if when it comes to the substance, it's how many people are better off today than 20 years ago, 30 mm -hmm. years ago. The numbers, uh, at least for Italy, are even worse because the growth has been uh, non-existent. David, I think Greg Villiers, who's been such a, a good help to us, writes one of his most cogent notes ever this morning, out moments ago. And he begins with Peggy Noonan's uh, Wall Street Journal weekend column, Democracy is not your plaything. With us, Luigi Zingales, with a terrific perspective out of Chicago on the American economy, American capitalism, and maybe this strange thing called uh, democracy. How swampy is the swamp, Luigi, and will it slow economic growth? I think the swamp is uh, very swampy, and yes, it does uh, reduce economic growth. And uh, I think there were great expectations that uh, uh, President Trump will do something about it. And uh, so far, we have not seen uh, much action on that front. Uh, what what could he do? He talks an awful lot about the process of draining said swamp. Uh, he hasn't made much progress doing that. You look at his cabinet; there are a lot of, of people there. You could argue have added to the swampiness of of, of Washington. What would you counsel him to do to, to make the place uh, a little less soupy, a little less swampy? First of all, I think I will uh, bring back a bit of uh, antitrust enforcement. I think that uh, um, at Chicago, we had a conference where I interviewed Judge Posner, who is the, probably the world expert on antitrust. Yeah, and he said very uh, blandly that antitrust is dead, that uh, he was nominated judge by Ronald Reagan in 82, expecting to see a lot of cases, and he saw almost none. So... Uh, I think time has come to be more aggressive on that front. What else did uh, Judge Posner say about the, the shape of the judiciary, the shape of the regulatory uh, landscape right now? I, I think of him as somebody who's so prolific and so frank about the state of the American judiciary. What did he have to say? Actually, first of all, I don't know whether I'm giving a scoop, but he's coming up with a new book about okay. the judiciary pretty soon. <laughs> the CV gets longer. For <laughs> yes. Yeah. And uh, it's not a flattering book vis-a-vis -vis the judiciary. So that, that's problem number one. Luigi, in the, in, in the Peggy Noonan op-ed, she has a single sentence, which on a Friday is really important. Why is the president never careful? Are businesses now too careful? Is our diminished nominal GDP such that business and finance is too careful in this age? I don't know whether it's because they're too careful. I think it's because uh, they 
don't see a big incentive to invest. I think that uh, part of uh, of the story is that uh, most of their return on, uh, to to investment is not due to uh, expansion, but is due to uh, the market power that they have, and so they don't want to compete against themselves by investing more. That's the reason why I think that uh, having a stronger antitrust will actually spur investments because it will spur competition. What should we make of, of this news? The president going to Saudi Arabia first because uh, the country was able to ink a big uh, weapons deal with the help of Jared Kushner, senior advisor uh, to the president, son-in-law of the president uh, as well. Does that raise any red flags to you as you look at uh, the, the role of, of that industry in particular uh, in the U.S. and globally? Uh, yeah, I think that the, the way uh, Donald Trump is using his family as advisor uh, reminds uh, of uh, less developed countries where you have this sort of family power uh, that extends. I don't think uh, is is a good sign for the U.S. economy. Uh, to be honest, uh, uh, the, on the other side, we didn't have much better. And this is the, the the Clinton family is another sort of uh, very powerful family with all the connections. So I think, unfortunately, this is a sign of the time, sign of how much uh, the U.S. economy has degenerated into a chronic capitalist economy. Mm. There's a great piece uh, in Bloomberg Business Week this week by our editor in chief, John Micklethwaite. He he posits, you know, if you were to look at President Trump is a CEO. Would you keep him on in light of all that's happened here? Uh, I'll let listeners give, give it a read. But but a point that he makes as well is that if, if a, a CEO were misspeaking, saying untruths, he would be called to account by the chairman of his board in, in many cases. And here we kind of draw draw the analogy out. Maybe Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, would be the, the equivalent of, of a chairman. Does he need to take a bigger role? Does there need to be more of a voice elsewhere in government, elsewhere in the Republican Party, keeping this president in check? I think that, uh, yes, the Republican Party has been a bit missing in action in doing the role of keeping the president in check. Now, I think that, uh, to be honest, I'm not, uh, I don't have any sympathy for Trump, but there is a lot of attention in trying to find him and catch him in, in mistakes, which happens to every new president, but particularly a new president is not very popular with the media. So I think there is a bit too much of an attention, but certainly uh, Donald Trump is is not very smooth in the way he sort of uh, behaves. And, and uh, But I think that uh, besides the appearances, I think that the substance is what, uh, what war is. Do you have a sense of what his message is to, to business? You can look at his cabinet. You can look at who he's appointed, who he's hired, who he's met with at, at the White House. Can you crystallize what his message to business leaders is? Uh, yes, I think his message has changed uh, quite a bit. Uh, uh, when he was a candidate, he was flirting with more sort of populist uh, uh, issues or ideas. And when he became uh, president, I think he turned into a very pro-business, not necessarily pro-market, but very pro-business president. Is it a gilded age? You address this in your books with, I think, great understanding of American history. Is that all we're dealing with here, is we've got a president who's part of the gilded age? Absolutely. I think that uh, my book now is is five years old, believe it or not. And uh, I think that... Thank you for making (laughs) (laughs) No, no, but I think that uh, is is still... I'm actually surprised how right I was, in a sense. I anticipated some of the themes that uh, are were present in the last campaign and are still present today. I think that the is a long-term trend, yeah. and we have not uh, found uh, a president like uh, Theodore Roosevelt backing this trend. 
circle back to investment again. We we began our conversation earlier this morning mm-hmm. on, on on the animal spirit. If if we've got diminished yields, if we've got a diminished view on inflation, if the United Kingdom has flat wage growth, the reflation once again, maybe it's not happening. And there's beautiful charts that show that disappointment for ten years. Have you been surprised by that? I think he's, uh, yeah, I have to admit a bit surprised uh, I have been, even if, uh, given we were recovering in the United States from a major financial crisis, this is not uh, unusual. I think that uh, uh, the next few years will be crucial in that dimension because uh, the, the fact that after a financial crisis, there is a slow recovery, mm-hmm. there is a tendency to deflation, et cetera, this is uh, uh, unfortunately normal. Uh, but now we have turned page, and if we don't see real growth now, then it's a bigger problem. Uh, Luigi Zingales, thank you so much for joining us with the Booth School uh, Chicago this morning on Italy, on his Italy, and, of course, on um, – I, I like what you said. Swamp said well. swamp. That's right. <laughs> so we've got a major crisis, folks, major surveillance crisis, Uh-oh. at least from my desk, David Gura. Twitter is down. Twitter's down. And I might suggest this is presidential prime time. Yeah. So you really wonder how this is going. I don't know where the president is right now. John Tucker, is, he's not on the airplane yet, is he? No, he this afternoon. This afternoon. Something is technically yeah. wrong, the website tells me right <gasps> Something, now. Something, okay, you have it too. Yeah. But you, ra- you, you raise a good question. We joke about this, but I, I am curious if he's going to be tweeting throughout the trip. And, um, yeah. you know, there were a lot of people who were grateful for the pause after the announcement of that special counsel that the president was not tweeting in the immediate aftermath. Of course, he shattered that silence yesterday during surveillance with those two tweets, including the one declaring it to be the greatest witch hunt in American political history. And I must say the congressman representing Salem, Massachusetts, had a great retort. He said, judging from his position, he could say that that is in fact not the case. There are are other examples in American history where the witch hunts have been. I I urge a travel (laughs) to Salem and a a look at that literature. Salem is a very spiritual place, (laughs) particularly I might point out at night. Walking around Eldridge Jerry's uh, little town is something. At night. More weight here. Yeah. yeah. It's very, very New England <laughs> I, I, Do you realize I've gotten through the week without talking about the Red Sox? That's true. <laughs> or the Celtics. And there's, well, the Celtics are doing better than me. Yeah. Uh, good. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com lens. 
President Trump embarks on his first official overseas trip today. His first stop is in Riyadh, and he'll, from there he'll travel to Tel Aviv, Rome, and Brussels, where he'll participate in a NATO summit. The president has been critical of the alliance and of the financial commitments member states have made to it in particular, and that'll be one subject of debate at the meeting, which my next guest will oversee. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg joins me now from Brussels, and there are, as I understand it, sir, two big agenda items at this summit. Burden sharing, what countries contribute to NATO and counterterrorism. Let's take them uh, in kind. The U.S. Secretary of State says he wants to see these countries make their commitments by the end of the year or outline plans to get there by the end of the year. How feasible is that, do you think? How reasonable an expectation is that? That's absolutely feasible because we are now discussing concrete proposals on how we can agree uh, on the concept of national plans outlining how the different NATO allies are going to make good on the promise they all made back in 2014 uh, to stop the cuts in defense spending and then gradually increase and then move towards spending 2% of uh, GDP on uh, defense. Uh, and we have already seen that NATO allies have uh, actually started uh, to increase uh, defense spending. They still have a long way to go, but they have turned the corner and started to move in the right direction. There is so much on NATO's plate at this point. There's a migrant crisis. There's the issue of counterterrorism. How frustrated are you that so much focus has to be uh, on funding, that we are talking so much here about how uh, NATO defense is funded? Defense spending funding is critical because we need the funds to uh, finance all the different activities uh, we do as the alliance. And uh, NATO has to provide both what we call collective defense in Europe, responding to a more assertive Russia illegally annexing Crimea and destabilizing eastern Ukraine. But we also need to play part of the uh, fight against uh, terrorism, stabilize our uh, neighborhood. And to do so, we need to invest more in defense. Uh, uh, after the end of the Cold War, uh, NATO allies uh, reduced defense spending. And that's absolutely understandable because when tensions are going down, it's possible to reduce defense spending. But now tensions are increasing again, and then we have to be able to increase defense spending again. Uh, the President of the United States spoke at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy this week. He said, quote, I will strengthen old friendships and seek new partners, but partners who also help us, not partners who take and take and take. I don't have to do too in-depth an exegesis there to interpret that he was talking about NATO. How damaging is that kind of rhetoric when you hear that? Well, President Trump has clearly uh, stated to me uh, in several conversations uh, last when we met in the White House in April last month, that he is strongly committed to NATO, uh, and that has also been the message from his uh, security team, from the Vice President, from Secretary Mattis, Tillerson, uh, and uh, McMaster. And uh, this is a commitment which we don't only see in words, but also in deeds, because uh, the United States is now increasing its military presence in Europe for the first time in many, many years. At the same time, uh, all allies understand that we need a fair burden sharing, and that's also the reason why 28 allies agreed uh, that those who are spending less than 2% of uh, GDP on defense have to uh, increase and they have started uh, to move in the right direction. What are you hoping to hear from the President of the United States uh, this week when he speaks to, to you and allies gathered in Brussels? I hope and I expect that he will uh, reiterate his uh, uh, strong commitment to uh, NATO. Uh, but also, of course, his expectation that NATO should do more in the fight against terrorism and also uh, invest more in, uh, in, in defense. 
And uh, I expect so uh, because that has been his message uh, since the uh, elections and also because strong NATO is not only good for Europe, but a strong NATO is also very important for the United States. Two world wars and the Cold War have taught us that stability in Europe is also important for prosperity and security in North America. And we have to remember that the only time NATO has invoked our Article 5, our co Collective Defense Clause, was after an attack on the United States, 9-11, uh, 2001, and we are being engaged in Afghanistan, our biggest military operation, as a direct response to an attack on the United States. There was a piece in Foreign Policy magazine I want you to respond to. It alleged that this summit is going to be different because of the participation of President Trump, that speeches are going to be shorter, they're going to be limited, that there won't be a detailed declaration to follow the summit. Can you confirm that those two changes are in fact being made? And if they are being made, it's because of the participation of President Trump. It's totally wrong, uh, the whole uh, story, because um, uh, this meeting is uh, a normal meeting. It's conducted and organized in exactly the same way as we organize uh, and, uh, and conduct other NATO meetings, other summits and other ministerial uh, meetings. Uh, it's true that it's not, not going to be a communique or a public statement, but that was also the case when we had a similar meeting uh, uh, when George Bush was a newly elected president back in 2001, because this is not a full-fledged NATO summit. This is a meeting where we have a new U.S. president meeting uh, all the other NATO uh, leaders. Uh, but it will be an important meeting, uh, a focused meeting, because we will focus on burden sharing, defense investments, and on uh, what more NATO can do to fight uh, uh, terrorism. Talking with the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg here on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg uh, Radio. Uh, defense ministers were gathered in Brussels earlier this week and they discussed NATO possibly joining the coalition fighting the Islamic State. Do you expect that issue is going to be resolved by the conclusion uh, of this summit on the 25th? NATO already provides uh, support to the coalition fighting uh, Daesh or ISIL. Uh, we provide support with our AWACS surveillance planes and we train Iraqi uh, forces. The question is uh, whether NATO can do even more uh, uh, and also whether NATO uh, should join the coalition and be a formal uh, member of the coalition. Uh, some allies are strongly advocating that because it will be a strong expression of political support and to also uh, increase our uh, ability to coordinate uh, with all the NATO allies that are already member of the alliance. So this is an issue which is now discussed uh, and I expect decisions to be made uh, soon. How big a concern uh, is intelligence sharing? Is that a hurdle for some uh, allies, especially in light of the meeting we've heard reported about at the White House in which the president revealed uh, some sensitive information to the uh, Russian ambassador to the U.S. and to the Russian for uh, foreign minister? Intelligence sharing is an important part of the NATO cooperation uh, and I appreciate that uh, NATO allies and, and especially the United States uh, are sharing intelligence with NATO and other allies uh, almost every day and that is very important for the strength of uh, NATO uh, and I'm confident that all uh, NATO allies are able to handle uh, the, the intelligence they is, receive from uh, other allies and from uh, partners. The United States is weighing sending more military personnel to Afghanistan, the expectation being that NATO would match uh, whatever the U.S. were uh, to send. The U.S. saying it plans to make a decision on that after this meeting concludes uh, next week. If they do decide to send more troops to Afghanistan, how quickly could NATO uh, react in kind? 
So we can react quite quickly, but first we have to decide on how many troops we are going to have there. Uh, we have approximately 13,000 troops now uh, 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 in Afghanistan. Half of them, approximately half of them, are uh, U.S. troops, and the other half are European, Canadian, and uh, coming from partner countries. Uh, and we are now discussing uh, whether uh, we should uh, have a, um, an increase, not very big increase, but an adjustment mm. of the force uh, levels. Uh, again, I expect decisions to be taken in the coming weeks. What is clear is that we will continue our military presence, uh, uh, train mission uh, in, uh, in Afghanistan, uh, and then we are looking into whether there is a need for uh, some increase in the troop uh, levels. Last question here. There was a huge ransomware attack last week. Uh, as you know, there was interference in the U.S. presidential election. I imagine cybersecurity is becoming a bigger concern for you uh, at NATO. What is your greatest concern when it comes to cybersecurity and NATO's positioning to combat it? So cyber threats is something, or threats are something we need to take really seriously because we have seen more sophisticated, more intense, and more uh, uh, higher numbers or more and more higher frequency of uh, cyber attacks against NATO allies and against uh, NATO networks. And therefore, NATO is responding by significantly increasing our uh, cyber defense uh, capabilities. We have also decided that cyber attacks can trigger what we call Article 5, our collective defense clause. So an attack, a cyber attack can be regarded as an attack on all uh, allies. Uh, we are also now establishing cyber as a military domain, meaning that we will have air, sea, mm. land and cyber as military, as I say, uh, operational domains. And then we also support allies to help them improve their cyber defenses with joint exercises with the Center of Excellence in Tallinn, where we share technology, best practices, and we always have to adapt and change because the cyber threat is constantly changing, so we have to be ready to respond. And that's also what we did last Friday, where we warned all allies uh, on the mounting uh, uh, cyber attack we saw uh, last weekend. This is maybe the best time to interview, to get back to the soul of what Washington used to do. David, why don't you bring in our esteemed guest, the ambassador. Yeah, great to have the ambassador. Max Bach is uh, with us, former senator, of course, uh, from the great state of uh, Montana, joining us now. Ambassador Bach, it's great to have you you're with us here. Let me get your reaction, first of all, to what we've seen over the last week uh, in Washington. I imagine you couldn't be happier to be 2,000 plus miles away <laughs> in Bozeman. Uh, are, are you happy with uh, with where we are now, the, the naming of a special counsel? Do you think that that's going to quiet uh, the concern over this investigation? I do. I'm, I'm quite pleased that um, a special counsel has been named uh, for several reasons. One, it's going to tend to calm things down a little bit um, because now there's order, uh, at least with respect to um, the degree to which um, the president may or may not have um, yeah. compromised um, the White House with, with Russia. But the other hand, on the other hand, but in addition to that, I, I, I like this because it's the the rule of law is beginning to take hold. You know, we're a country of, of, of laws, and we now do have a special prosecutor who, under the law, is going to determine the facts. And we know is there obstruction of justice or not, and that's good. 
Ambassador Barkas, if I go into the Nova Cafe in Bozeman, Montana, and get a decent breakfast, is all that's going on in your beltway, do people care across this country, or is it just an East Coast media frenzy? Well, that's a good question. Um, it's, um, it's a little bit of both. Um, they are kind of a shrug. They um concerned, um, don't like all that's going on, but... Um, to a large degree, many of them think, you know, that's kind of, well, that's Washington. You know, that's just what they do back there. They get all hot and bothered about things back there, and they just don't take care of us, mm-hmm. spend time thinking about our issues. So I, I, I think a lot of people at the Nova Cafe are, you know, don't pay a lot of attention to all this. They do a little, but not as much as we like to think uh, they should, um, those of us who are very involved in, the, in policy. Oh, that's Washington. How do we get back to a different definition? How do we get back to a, a, a different Washington, one that I would imagine inspired you to run for office and decide to take up camp there for, for a while? How far are we from those days? Well, we've drifted away for a long time. Um, I was in the Senate uh, 40 years, uh, including the House of Representatives, 36, four in the House. And it's over time you could just feel slowly, um, just um, members of the Senate are drifting apart. We're just not spending a lot of time together. I think there are a lot of factors here. Um, one is TV in the Senate. Another is just advances in communications technologies, which are at once um, um, aggregating, but also disaggregating, because we in the Senate would speak directly to the cameras and to the country and little less to each other in, 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 the, in the Senate. And then, obviously, um, redistricting is, is hurt a little bit, um, and social yeah. media, the rise of social media. Get it all together, and uh, we just, we're not yeah. what we once were. And for some reason, the people, in my judgment, this is a bit presumptuous, who get elected these days are more inclined to, uh, to push their narrow view than they are to listen to somebody else in the body to try to figure out a compromise. How should the Democrats respond to all that we've seen this week? What is your advice to those that are on the firing line? They've got to make the responses. They've got to talk the book. But, Max Baucus, what should Democrats do after what we've observed this week? Well, um, keep cool, keep calm, um, and, and, and focus on what people really care about. That tends to be jobs. That tends to be, tends to be their kids and education. And, you know, people are basically the same almost worldwide. They want decent income, food and table, um, and, uh, and clean air, clean water, decent health care. And um, we should just do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more we do and stay away from uh, a lot of the stuff in Washington, gradually um, the message that, that people care about will sink in. Has your optimism for there being policy change lessened after what we've seen over these last few weeks? Uh, you had some optimism that we would see some progress on policy on Capitol Hill. How big a distraction is what we've seen unfold here over the last couple of weeks? How much is that going to detract from work on Capitol Hill? Well, I think it detracts significantly. Um, even though committees are holding hearings, they're trying to hold hearings, as see ways and means held one just a day or two ago. Still, everyone, walk, everyone walking out of that hearing room is going to be asked by a reporter, um, his or her reactions to the latest um, scandal of the day, oh. and that's that's very distracting. Um, it's uh, but I'm, I'm pleased, frankly, that we now have a special prosecutor, which I think right. in the temple let down. Amb- I think that's good. I don't, Ambassador. Did you walk across China in your term there? <laughs> in your public, <laughs> it's take a while. Well, you, yeah. 
No, but I I did visit all the provinces, and I was, okay. And I arrived when I arrived, and when I presented my credentials to uh, President Xi Jinping, um, I told him I was going to visit all the provinces, and every time I saw him, he would check on me and make sure mm. that I'm still right. visiting, visiting them. No, it was very important to visit the provinces. Tell us about the vacuum that the Americans have given the Chinese to rebuild their proverbial and storied road. Well, in my judgment, I think it's a big vacuum. The, the biggest geopolitical issue that crossed my desk when I was over there three years was Trans-Pacific Partnership. That was so important to establish America's uh, position um, in that part of the world. And it was so important to me, in fact, I got on a plane on my own, flew back to Washington, and met with 50 different members of the House and Senate for one full week on that issue alone. Both bodies, uh, both political parties. It was during the uh, couple of weeks, a couple of months before the election, pr- promoting uh, and urging members of Congress to pass it. And I could tell pretty soon that by the body language of almost every member I talked to, <laughs> it was not going to go anywhere. Yeah. But uh, it's but we we it's by not passing this, yeah. we are giving, in my judgment, um, China a huge opportunity to step in and, and take advantage of our absence. Many ambassadors of Southeast Asian countries would talk to me and say to me, you know, and almost plead with me for America to pass the TPP because that would enable uh, those countries to push back a little more easily against China because we're present there. But our absence will make it more difficult for those countries to push back well, um, against China's po- uh, political um, pressures, yeah. uh, even military pressures, economic pressures. Um, and add to that all the all the actions China is undertaking. Yeah. It's not just one bill, one road, which is massive, but there's something called the AIIB. There's something else called RCEP. Um, China's got a vision. China's got a plan. Well, I think we'll head off to them, frankly. Ambassador, we're out of time. We look forward to getting a briefing from you again. He's smarter than us. He's in Bozeman, Montana. Max Bacchus, 36 <laughs> years. Big trout. And really enjoy, yeah, really enjoy talking with uh, the senator from uh, Montana. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.